So even though we make light of a sad situation, doesn't mean we don't wrestle with sad things, death, suffering, evil, injustice, darkness. Why does God allow suffering? We're in this brief three-week sermon series called Why, our last week in it. Why does God allow suffering? Where can he be in all of that? Our text for today comes from the New Testament account according to St. John in the 16th chapter. Jesus is talking to his friends, and he says, look, fellas, this is going to be a hard time for you. You're going to suffer a lot. There's going to be pain. There's going to be sorrow. You're going to go through some very difficult things. But then he wraps up with these words of comfort to his disciples. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's come together in prayer. Father, this morning we pray as our Puritan brothers have prayed. O God, most high, most glorious, the thought of your infinite serenity cheers me. For I'm toiling, I'm troubled, I'm distressed, but you are forever at perfect peace. Your designs cause no fear of care or unfulfillment. They stand fast as the eternal hills. You bring order out of confusion, and my defeats are your victories. Grant me to know that I'm truly loved, and I truly live when I live to you, and all else the world offers is trifling. Your presence alone can make me holy, devout, strong, and happy. Abide in me, I pray, O gracious God, for Christ's sake. Amen. So we'll talk about evil, we'll talk about pain, we'll talk about suffering and why God allows it. But before we talk about it, let's talk about why it even exists. Why is there darkness in the world? Why didn't God just create a place where none of this happens? And here's where we need to start, understanding that God is not the creator of evil and suffering. We know that the creation story, God created the heavens and the earth, the animals, the water, the clouds, and mankind. And in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So where does this idea of trouble and sickness and pain and death come in? Well, it all has to do with this idea of free will. Let's talk about that for a couple of minutes. God gave man free will, the opportunity to either love him or reject him. Well, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just make us love him? God gives us free will because that's the only way for us to enjoy true love. When there's no threat of rejection, There can be no celebration of the choice to love. When there's no danger that the object of our love will rebel and turn away, there is no evidence of true love. The best illustration I've heard of this was one of Pastor Zardy's actually from a couple years ago. Wouldn't it be great if you had a dog who just loved you? He was always at the door kissing you when he came home, loving on you, did all the right things all the time, never ran out of the yard, never pooped on the carpet. There were no vet bills and he never snapped at any of your guests. If only there was such a dog. Well, there is. He looks like that. (laughs) You prop him up at the door. He's always there, smile on his face. He will never miss one time when you come home to be there to love you. Well, God could have done that. He could have just propped us up toward him. But that's not real love. When you place this dog at the door and come home, it's nice. But he doesn't really love you because he doesn't have the ability to rebel and run away. What about this guy? That's a dog that loves you. That's a dog that will give you sloppy kisses when you come home. He'll be there in your darkest hours. He'll lay on your lap and he'll comfort you. But he also poops on the carpet. He also snaps at your guests. He also barks at 3 o'clock in the morning. Because he has the free will. You can't um, enjoy the benefits of true love, as you do with the dog in the upper right, if there's no opportunity for him from time to time to say no, because that's not a true choice 
to love. Because humanity was given the opportunity to not live with God, to not love him, because we have that choice, when we do love him, that's true, deep, divine, and real expressions of love. And God wanted us to experience that. He wanted to experience that, so he gave us free will. Point number two is related. God planned our deliverance and then allowed suffering to enter the world. Remarkable verse um, from 2 Timothy, read the book many times. This has uh, been missed by me every time until this week. God saved us and called us to, be, uh, to, to a holy calling, not because of our works, okay, we got that, but because of his purpose and grace, good, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. We all get that so far. And then the last line, before the ages began, he knew there was a plan of redemption, salvation, and deliverance even before the world began. In other words, before there was any world or any sin in that world that needed grace, God planned saving grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That means when Adam sinned, God was already planning on how to save us. So we can say Adam's sins was no surprise to God. Permitting that sin was part of God's plan so that God could reveal his mercy and his grace and his justice and his wrath and his patience and his wisdom in ways that could have never been revealed if there had been no rebellion, sin, and no need for a savior. So it all works out. Through sin and redemption, we can know God more fully, and that means we understand what it means to be fully loved. Through sin and God's plan of redemption, we can now know God more fully because of what he's done for us, and now we can know what it truly means to be deeply, fully loved. Apparently, there's a street artist named Pro Boy Nick. I don't know anything about him. I saw his pictures online this week. I thought they were interesting. He takes dirty cars. You know how dirty our cars get in the winter? Soot and salt and grime. And he turns them into pieces of art. Isn't that good? It's the back of a truck. It was filthy. But Pro Boy Nick took it upon himself to turn it into something beautiful. This one is good, too. This is a primate on the back of a, a dirty, filthy van. Isn't that beautiful? I like this one the best because it's the most subtle. Isn't it good? Man, he's really good. Filthy truck turned into something beautiful. Now, it's not a perfect illustration of the point, but the question is, could this guy have done this art had the vehicles not been first filthy, defiled? No, he couldn't. So we understand God is in the business of taking distress and that which is filthy and transforming it into something beautiful. Didn't we read that in the musical portion of our worship this morning? Isaiah says, I will give you beauty for ashes. I will give you rejoicing for your mourning. Because God allowed our choice, and he knew we would rebel, he prepared a plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, which because it happened would reveal how much he loves us and how much he's willing to sacrifice. So now we're able to fully enjoy deep love and a deep commitment of God on our lives. So now we dig into the why reasons, the why questions. Why would God allow suffering? Well, number three, God can use our pain to draw people to himself, to draw people to Christ. From our text, Jesus is talking to his friends, as we, as we said, telling them about the suffering that they will endure, and he says, in this world you will have trouble. Anybody connect with that? I sure can. But he says, take heart. Why? because I have overcome the world. There's nothing wrong with self-help. There's nothing wrong with reading a book or getting counseling. As a matter of fact, uh, we put that to you from time to time when it's needed. But the real deliverance, the real world overcomer is in Christ. 
So what Jesus is saying that in your suffering, I'm calling on you to turn to me. That's one of the reasons that we allow it. C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer that many of us are familiar with, says this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God wants us to abide in him for sure, and some of us are not. Some of us aren't. So he uses pain to get our attention so that we might turn toward him in our distress, in our despair, in our joys and our rejoicing, maybe we're ignoring God. In our blessings, we are not um, acknowledging him and thanking him and living with him. So God says, I'm going to touch your circumstance. I'm going to motivate you to turn to me in your distress, in the darkness of life, in the cancer, in the death, in the frustration, in the broken relationships, in the financial ruin. I'll allow that. Why? So that you will turn back to Christ. More than abiding with God, it's God's desire that we rely on him. Johnny Erickson was 17 years old in 1966. Many of you know her name. She was swimming with friends. She dove, hit the bottom, broke her neck, and instantly became a quadriplegic. And since 1966, she has been relying on God to be her everything. Two-minute video here of Johnny Erickson, now Tata, Johnny Erickson, Tata married, talking about how God has allowed her suffering and the fact that she has not been able to use her hands or legs since 1966 and what that means. Take a look. I identify so strongly with 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul was writing to his brothers in Asia and he inasmuch says, I don't want you friends to be uninformed about what we endured. We were facing conflicts far beyond our ability. Far beyond, to the point where we even despaired of life. Hello, I get that. Because I'm there often. Oh God, I'd rather be dead than face this. I mean, even the Apostle Paul struggled with that. But then he says in the next verse, this is so powerful. But these things happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I think of that verse virtually every morning. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know that time when you're awake, but you haven't yet opened your eyes. For me, I can hear my girlfriend in the kitchen running water for coffee. I know she's going to come into my bedroom, give me a bed bath, do my toileting routines, get me dressed, sit me up in a wheelchair, push me to the bathroom, brush my hair, brush my teeth, blow my nose. And my eyes are still closed and I'm thinking, I can't do this. I cannot face this. I, I cannot face this one more day. I have no strength for quadriplegia. But Lord God, I can do all things through you, even quadriplegia, if you strengthen me. So give me your smile. Jesus, I need you urgently. Please show up big time. And I'm telling you, by the time she walks into my bedroom with that cup of coffee, I've got a smile that has been sent straight from heaven. Hmm. Hard fought for, hard won, and profound, deep, and powerful. That peace that Michael was just talking about that passes all understanding. I don't get it. But I have it. Have you ever seen a more transparent and more honest video? God, I can't do this. I don't have strength for quadriplegia. I'd rather be dead right now than live with this. But I know your promises. I know the smile that I will have will come from you. Fill me up today. Stepping away from my notes for a minute. Let me be bold and give you a bit of a push here. 
I'm here to suggest that today if you've gone through the garbage of life and somehow have come through it and that has not turned you toward the Lord, you missed the opportunity. You missed his motivation. His plan for allowing that in your life was to have you turn back to him wherever you were. I'm not here to guilt you or make you feel bad, but that's the purpose. That's biblical. God allowed that in your life to get your attention, to have you turn back to him. And like Johnny Erickson said, I'd rather be dead than endure this, Lord, or I don't have the strength to endure this. Yes, turn to him. Allow the peace that trans, uh, transcends all understanding. It's, it's a peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of your trial. Allow that peace to, to bless you and, and to rest on you and to draw you back to him. Number four this morning, God can use pain to sharpen our character and become more like Christ or make us more like Christ. Perhaps he's allowing this in your life to make you more like him, to sharpen your character. We know from Romans 5 that suffering produces perseverance, and that perseverance produces character, and that character produces hope. It's a direct line from suffering to hope, and what we know hope is is the belief in the promises of the one who's never broken a promise. It's a deep commitment and trust to Christ that even in the midst of the darkness and pain, there is hope. He will pull me through. This isn't the end of the story. It will continue and eventually lead to my redemption, eventually lead to my life with you in a perfect place forever. So interesting, if you follow the news, I'm a big Olympics buff and the coronavirus in Asia and the Summer Olympics in Tokyo just across, just across the water there. And there's no plan B. We can't move this thing. That's the big story. We've been spending 14 years and $22 billion, $22 billion to build the Olympics. You can't just move it to another city last minute. We don't know what we're going to do. And that's not the point of my illustration here, but I just thought that was so interesting. When we talk about the Olympics, we talk about athletes who train. And they go through all kinds of rigorous training to increase their endurance, to increase their strength. And many times the training is painful there's suffering. There's even misery in this kind of physical training. But the results of the training, improved skills, improved abilities, greater endurance, and on and on. These athletes find that the ends justify the means, that the athlete I will be is worth the misery that I will endure. I'm here to suggest to you this morning that biblically the pain that you are enduring is worth where it'll take you. The character that it's creating in your life the Christ-likeness that it's bringing upon you. Number five for us today is that God can use pain to lovingly discipline us. This is related to the previous point. God can use pain to lovingly discipline us. We know from Hebrews 12, the writer says, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, we know that, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We don't usually think of discipline as a good thing because we confuse discipline with punishment. And punishment is retribution for misbehavior. But discipline is the loving way in which we can correct someone's actions and behavior for their good, for their betterment. Sometimes God uses pain and suffering to lovingly discipline us and to get us back on the right track. It's not retribution for bad behavior. It's not punitive. It's redemptive. Perhaps you are in a season of suffering of pain for redemptive purposes, 
to discipline you, to make you more Christ-like, to have you turn back to him and understand his ways. One of my favorite Christian speakers just this past week, it was great how the timing worked out. They said, um, when I talk to my kids about where they need to be, I give them their instructions, and then I touch their circumstances. And I love the communication there. Here, my child, is where the good things are. I'm not keeping you from things that are fun just because I'm mean and I want to control you. I'm keeping you where the good things are. And when you don't obey, I will touch your circumstances because it's worth it, because I don't want you to go there because it's bad for you. Maybe God is touching your circumstances because he needs his child to get back to where the good things are. A number six for us this morning is God allows suffering to make us long for our real home. Christian, the idea of heaven changes our uh, thoughts about suffering completely. The idea that there is a heaven to look forward to changes our attitudes and our thoughts about suffering completely. This isn't the end of the story. There is another chapter, and it is as good as it could be. In Hebrews 11, the writer talks about the saints of old. We learn about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Church, do you long for heaven? What's the level of your yearning? Isn't that a funny word, yearning? Is there a great desire in your heart to be with him right now? Now, it's not up to us when we choose to go. We have uh, work to do here on earth to live for him. But I believe pain and suffering is in your life to increase our yearning and our desire for heaven. I've talked about this before. I experimented with fasting for actually a pretty long period in my, my life. I haven't done it for a while. Probably should get back to it. Maybe we even should talk about that here sometime at church fasting. Jesus fasted, the disciples fasted. It's a discipline that's put to us. And I wanted to learn what it would do. Well, how would it affect my spirit? How would it increase my faith? And I, I read the books, you know, it'll make you um, hungry for the word and the time you spent eating, you should spend in prayer. And I did all that stuff. And it's good. But what it taught me was to yearn when I would be in the middle of hunger, I couldn't wait for that morning when I had the scheduled break in my fast and I would eat again. That's what I thought about. I couldn't wait. And you can understand that when you're hungry, you can't stop thinking about that time when you get to, to fill your mouth with something good and the joy and the celebration that that would be. And I wonder if there's suffering in your life right now so God can move you to thinking about that moment when you join him and the joy and the celebration that will be there. Finally, the point is long, and I'm sorry it's wordy, but I, I wanted to make it. God allows suffering so that believers can display this truth. So now we're talking about how we reflect our lives even in our suffering. And these are deep things. This isn't kind of entry-level Christianity. This is deep stuff. Perhaps God has allowed pain and suffering in your life so that you can so that, show that Jesus is more precious and satisfying than all the comforts, all the pleasures, and all the treasures of this world. In other words, when people look at you, they see your suffering and your pain, still you're joyful, still you're hopeful, and they think of themselves, that person's crazy. Or they know that Jesus is more precious and satisfying 
than even being delivered out of this suffering. doesn't mean that we don't ask God to deliver us out of it. Sure, I want to be done with this. But what I want people to see in me is that the Jesus I have in me that will never leave is more satisfying and precious than anything the world has to offer. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The superior worth of Christ is magnified because in all of Paul's losses, he experiences Christ as all-satisfying. The superior worth of Christ is magnified because in all of Paul's losses, he experiences Christ as all-satisfying. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk talks about suffering, a terrible time in the land. There was no joy, there was no happiness. He writes this, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, here's my reaction, I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I'm not just rejoicing, period. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because what I have in Him is of greater value and more of a treasure than anything the world has to offer. I am joyful in the Lord. Famines and pestilence and persecution, these happen so that the world might see that the followers of Jesus discover that what they have in their hearts is their exceeding joy. One more scripture on this point from the book of Psalms. The writer says, Then I will go to the altar of God. I will go to God who is my joy and my delight. In him I have my joy. In him I have my delight. Even though my circumstances are rough, and I'm talking about the darkest stuff of life, I still have joy, exceeding joy in my God, my Savior. John Piper is a a Baptist pastor, so we would disagree with John on a couple points. Uh, He's up in Minnesota, but I think he nails it here. He writes, the losses of life are meant to wean us off the poisonous pleasures of the world and lure us to Christ as our everlasting joy. The sorrows of the world make it possible for us to rejoice in sorrow and show that Jesus is more valuable than all the world. We talked about heavy stuff this morning. And it doesn't get lost on me that the word cancer is not foreign to this congregation. That death happens, there's suffering, people are going through garbage right now. So I don't stand up here flippantly or shallowly and think, you ought to just endure, get through it. I think I understand the gravity of suffering. But here's the good news. That the Jesus I, uh, you have in you and the Jesus I have in me is of greater treasure than even being delivered out of your suffering. Again, I'm not saying don't pray for it, don't wish for it. Yeah, I don't want to be painful or lose a spouse or whatever. Of course not. But the treasure I have in Christ is worth even more. And again, the idea, the truth of heaven for the Christian changes our thoughts, changes our attitudes about suffering completely. This is a chapter. There is an eternity. Your next steps read like this. These are available at the bottom of your worship folder. Let your suffering turn you to Jesus who has overcome the trouble of this world. Number two, allow the pain in your life to produce perseverance. That perseverance we know biblically will produce character and we know that character will produce hope. And number three, let the world see. Be a witness, be a testimony in your suffering that through your suffering that Jesus is more precious and satisfying than all the comforts 
and the pleasures of this world. Let's come together in prayer. Lord, again, the gravity of uh, this topic is um, real, and there are hurting hearts, and there's confusion. And it seems to me, when you read the Bible, that when bad things happen, you pray for God to stop them, and he will. And we've done that, and sometimes you don't. (laughs) So what's up? Maybe you're turning us back to you. Maybe you're disciplining us. Maybe you're shaping our character. Maybe you're making us yearn for heaven. Maybe you're allowing us to be a testimony and a witness to a watching world, that even in the midst of the darkest stuff of life, we love you, and we understand that the treasure that we have in you is of greater value than anything the world can offer, even comfort. So bless this community, bless this congregation. Let the world see in us you. We're not better than anybody. We're simple, humble people who've met the Savior and have been changed. Glorify uh, yourself through us. Advance your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.